Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I had a conversation with Dr. Brian Cohen and really enjoyed it. He's another one of these physicians who has a really broad ranging experience, and he's found specific opportunity through his exposure to working with a MedMal insurance company and looking at anesthesia claims to be able to start a business that not only uh, reduces the likelihood that an anesthesiologist is going to have a claim against them, but also integrates CME into a really cool tech platform that is going to hopefully combat burnout, reduce uh, events of MedMal, as well as uh, reduce insurance premiums. So a lot of innovation, a lot of exciting things, in addition to working in a number of different practice environments that Dr. Cohen's going to talk about today. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of APM Success. This is episode 90. Hard to believe we're closing in on the century mark. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Brian Cohen. Dr. Cohen uh, is an anesthesiologist in Florida. He's an entrepreneur. He's uh, a great critical thinker and a business person. And I keep saying this, I'm really excited for this conversation, but it is again, true in this case. Dr. Cohen, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. So uh, you're, you're a man with, I think, a lot of talents and a lot of things going on. Give us a little flavor right now for all the different things that have your attention professionally. Sure. So um... I am a practicing anesthesiologist, um, administrative chief of an anesthesia company called Miami Anesthesia Services. Um, we're down here in South Florida, really ranging anywhere from Palm Beach down to Miami. Um, I can get into to sort of where we've where we've landed within that company and what our focuses what our focuses are. Um, you know that opportunity to to have my own anesthesia company has also led to a color a couple other opportunities. Um, and just sort of opened my mind to getting, having the ability to, to think and to do and to create. Um, and that's what opened the door for me, really. When you were exiting training, did you envision that you would one day be uh, like a, launching a practice with a handful of your friends? No way. No way. Honestly, when I was finishing training, you know, I had this, I grew up in the Midwest in St. Louis, and I had this vision of like living this beach life in Florida. And I thought I'd be happy having a small practice, you know, working in the hospital, um, going home to the easy beach life. And I was very wrong. <laughs> Tell us about uh, those first clinical years and what, what did you do transitioning out of training? Sure. So I did my training in anesthesia at uh, Washington Uni University in St. Louis. Um, very intense program as far as the academic setting and the, the mindset of the people that kind of pass through there. And, and honestly, I assume that's what all anesthesia and all operating room settings were like. Um, you know, leaving there, I wasn't sure I could survive that for the rest of my career. And, and I was actually very pleased when I landed in, in Houston for my first year out where my wife was finishing her um, residency training there and started working with a group, um, which is now part of USAP, which was then Greater Houston Anesthesiology, where I literally walked into a scenario where there were 26 partners in a group where all 26 of them were like a real team. And where you walk in and the surgeons uh, speak to you and ask about your family, you know, instead of um, dictating to you exactly how, when, and where to do what they need you to do. And and it really was such a positive change for me. I said, maybe I can do this the rest of my life. Um, so it was a great way to, to exit training and enter kind of the real world and, and see what, what, what's really out there. What specialty is your wife? Uh, physical medicine and rehab. Oh, nice. So it's funny. We're, from a personality point of view, we are the exact opposite as far as career choice, meaning we push a drug, we get an immediate result. She does a treatment and she just watches it evolve over months to years as the patients improve. And I think that you can then tell like who the patient one is in the relationship also. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. I, uh, I know that's one of the things that my wife likes about anesthesia too, is the sort of the interventional, you do a thing and see a result. And it certainly does attract a certain personality. And it's funny to map that onto, <laughs> map that onto relationships. 
And so, you know, that was a, it sounds like it was a private group. It was purchased. Tell us a little bit about sort of that acquisition and what it was like being in a group that went through that type of uh, activity. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting because I, I was only there for one year while my wife finished and then we moved to, to Fort Lauderdale. Um, when I joined a group in Fort Lauderdale, it was again, a private group pre-acquisition. Um, however, it was five years into it acquired by Mednax. Um, I was the classic example of always the next guy up, you know, oh, you're going to be partner, but then I'm sorry, we just got bought out. Um, and that probably had a little bit of an effect on me um, and kind of lit a fire under me to, to say, you know, I, I saw what the definition of partnership was. Um, I saw that when I went to Houston and I saw those 26 guys and how they really literally worked as a unit. Um, when one person needed something, the other guys jumped in and it, and it really was um, the exact opposite of every man, every woman for themselves. Um, so, you know, to, to go into another experience and miss out on that feeling of, of having that um, kind of intense relationship where, where you know you can rely on each other um, at any time. And again, anesthesia, you know, it can get critical at times. It, it can also get, um, you know, long hours, we get worn down. We, we have life outside also. So you want to rely on, on the people around you. Um, and I think that did light a little bit of a fire underneath me. But remember, I, I was practicing down here in South Florida. You know, we are, as we like to say, we're the belly of the beast as far as large corporate anesthesia. You know, and Sheridan started here, which is now Envision. Mednax headquarters is here. USAP executive offices are here. Um, I didn't know that there were opportunities outside of that. So it was what it was. And I was, I was employed and I went to work each day and that was what I did. I want to zoom in for a minute on sort of that, the Houston experience and the way you described, you talked about partnership, not only I think in like the legal sense, but in the sort of collegiality, are there any anecdotes or specific instances that come to mind where you thought this is, this is medicine the way it was meant to be, where your, your colleagues were helping one another productively to, to move, you know, patient care forward? You know, I, I think it was, I mean, if you can visualize that, you know, the Texas Medical Center is a huge system. Right. And and um, I was in the St. Luke's system there. And again, this was a long time ago, but it still visually sticks out in my head very well that, you know, you can have 50 ORs going all around offsite main operating room and the anesthesia office was the size of a utility closet. And at any time of day, we were all kind of just sandwiched in that utility closet waiting to do our next task. But the amazing thing was, if anyone was out already and they and, and, the, and a call came in, hey, can you do this? People just jumped up and went. So it was this constant shuffling of people through this utility closet, but it wasn't just doing what they had to do. It was doing what the group had to do as a whole and just jumping in at any time to fill in. And, and it was, um, I mean, it, it, it definitely left an impression on me. No complaining. It was just what they were there to do. I know when we spoke previously, one of the things that you talked about was the idea of culture, like a, a company culture or a organizational culture. It sounds like this was a pretty healthy and positive, life-giving even culture, would you say? It, it was. And it, um, it, it definitely translated when, when the time came and the opportunity came where I you know, got that phone call. Um, hey, do you want to start an anesthesia group for a new hospital we're starting in Miami. Um, and I said, no, I'm crazy. <laughs> um, but when I started to, to actually have that conversation and, and really contemplate what that meant as an opportunity, um, that was the driving force, was the fact that we could sit there with, uh, with a blank slate with three other individuals and say, what do we want to create? So what do, we want, what do we all want to take from all of our previous experiences? They had worked in the Envision world. I had worked in Mednex. We had been private. One of my partners was in private practice in DC at the time. What do we want to take from all of our past experiences and what didn't we like? And let's do the opposite. Okay, now what did we like? And let's build on that. And because you have one shot, you know, you, you can be in a health system and you can have ideas and you can try to change that culture and good luck. It's, it's like, it, it, it's very difficult to move and to change culture. But when you start off with it, 
you can create anything you want. And that was really the opportunity that clicked for me to say, let's, let's do this. So, so talk a little more about the genesis of this. Cause this, obviously this sounds great. Like there's probably people out there listening, thinking, well, I wish my friends would start a hospital and call me up to build the anesthesia program. That sounds like a good gig. How did that come about? Yeah, but they see, the, I don't know if you can see that this is great. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Um, there was, again, South Florida is, is a unique um, setting for healthcare. Um, and there years had gone by um, because we're a certificate of need state in which a new hospital was literally started in this area um, because based on population and, and current beds, you can never prove that need for, for more beds. Um, until a, a, a project came up as a joint venture with physician owners, along with Miami Children's Hospital, um, a large MSO called VitalMD, and a management company out of Kansas. Um, and the idea was um, they, they bought an existing hospital is the way that that, that was acquired. Um, they bought that existing hospital and they shut it down and we're, we're going to rebrand it as this physician-owned concierge surgical and OB hospital, which um, was, was the right thing to do. Um, everything about it spoke to what was needed in healthcare, especially down here. Um, I, I, and again, this is, this is my opinion only and, and you know, I felt that healthcare had become very average and that was okay. Anesthesia, because of being 90% employed model here, um, it was okay to just go and do your thing. You didn't have to do anything more. You didn't have to do anything less. You just, it didn't matter as much. It wasn't driving anything. And, you know, the, the greatest example of that is I could be an anesthesiologist and go to a surgery center or a hospital and do one case and cancel 90, or I could do all 90 and cancel none. And I went home with the same paycheck each day. Well, that doesn't, those incentives don't align. And, and that mentality of, of kind of going above average and above and beyond just didn't exist. And this hospital was changing everything about that um, by putting the ownership in the hands of the physicians, by making them proud of what they were creating and bringing the patients in which they really wanted to have this experience. The experience was incredible. We had, you know, uh, masseuse for the patient's family members while they're waiting. There was butler service to the patients. There was, you know, uh, an organic chef though. I mean, now I tell you this and the hospital closed in 20 months. <laughs> So all that sounds great, um, but it didn't make it. And um, incredible, we could probably spend a couple hours just talking about some of the lessons that I learned watching that process happen. Um, but, you know, long story a little bit shorter is being the anesthesia group for that hospital um, and forming for that hospital really tied us to every aspect from wall to wall, floor to ceiling, we were involved with the care of this surgical hospital. All of the other surgeons and physicians, this was one of their many places they went. This was our home, right? We lived and died with this place. And every case that went through, my family depended on that. My partner's families depended on that. We all had small children, married. We needed to make this work. Um, and we found the right people in our anesthesia world to partner with. We, we, we interviewed 43 CRNAs before we hired our first one. And again, this comes down to culture. And what we wanted to hear was why they wanted to come into this. Why do you want to take the risk? I mean, this hospital doesn't even exist yet. We hadn't had our first patient. Our group, we're not even a real group. We haven't done a case yet. This is just an idea. Why are you willing to do this? Um, and then to hear the response of, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of doing what I'm doing and not getting what I should be getting out of it. And I'm actually discouraged from doing more because then that means everybody else has to do more, right? So just come back down to average. And when people didn't want to hear that, those are the people that we wanted. And we built this incredible group of people. And even though the hospital closed after 20 months, and that really was based on some of the challenges of, of facility contracting with, with payers in South Florida and, you know, a, a, a company from Kansas trying to understand that. Um, 
we walked away saying, wow, we have 35 providers. We're in network with every major insurance company in the country, and we can start anywhere tomorrow. Where should we go? And so that's what allowed us to branch out and to survive, um, you know, post-hospital and land all in the outpatient surgery world. So, you know, now um, to kind of fast forward, we're in uh, six different surgery centers in South Florida um, and partner with another company and three more. And that's, and that's the one thing is the culture and, you know, of, of who we are and why we started as is what we've carried through. Um, and uh, it, it's been a roller coaster, but it's been rewarding. I'm really enamored with this idea of uh, just the, the, we'll call it HR, <laughs> um, getting the right people on your team. And if you're building your own practice, that's very important. I'm curious, how did you kind of share your vision or your values, or how did you assess the fit of this first CRNA? You know, it sounds like you hired, you know, 2% of the people you talked to, <laughs> roughly. Uh, how did you, How did that, how did you kind of develop that methodology or... Did you kind of just go with your gut? <laughs> no, my gut was wrong too many times. I, I, I couldn't do that. Um, to, to be honest with you, it was finding the right leaders. You know, once we found the leaders that believed in the same priorities that we did and really wanted to do this together, um, they became extensions of us. And so for every person we hired, they thought of two more people that fell into that bucket. And they became our best recruiting tools. Uh, to be honest with you, Justin, as crazy as you were for the first hire, by the time we got two years in, we didn't even have to interview people anymore. We, we trusted the people that we had already hired enough to, to trust their recommendations of who they were going to bring in with us. So it, it, was, it was really kind of a unique hiring scenario. Yeah, wow. I, I'm curious to know, as you know, things are winding down at the hospital. You can probably see the writing on the wall. You see the, you know, the P&L month over month and things aren't, you realize that perhaps there's a, 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 an inflection point for you guys approaching. How are you strategizing in your group and what did it look like to, I mean, to take 35 people working in one place and then transition to like, are you doing RFPs? Are you just like, how are you, how are you evaluating other opportunities to try to keep the group together? So that's a great question. And I think the easiest answer is we we didn't know. We were board members. Like I said, we were involved in every single thing. We we had one day notice the hospital was closing. Wow. Okay. So you didn't see the writing on the wall. It was it just we, came we down. Knew, we knew from a financial point of view what was going on in the hospital, but there were there were a lot of um possibilities that were out there to come in and and, and essentially flip the switch and and create a, a savings. Um we had one day notice of the hospital was closing. So um, to, you know, to open up about that, how I reacted, I, I kind of gave up. I, I, I kind of said, I can't do this again. Like, because I'm, I'm, and we talked about this a little bit, I'm very type A. Like for me to do this initial jump off the cliff to start my own group with, with my partners was very difficult for me because that's just not my personality. Um, I like to know what's happening every day and I had no idea what was happening any day. Um, and so it, it physically and emotionally took so much out of me that when that happened, I'm like, I don't think I can do this again. Um, and, and actually, you know, considered moving over to the medical malpractice world completely, which was, um, you know, another thing to, to talk about it as that I was doing alongside with that. And, um, until, you know, the same partner that convinced me to, to leave my first job and join into this adventure, you know, sat me down and said, look, when, when are you going to have that chance to go out and say, we can start tomorrow with a group? Um, I go, oh man, you're right. You know, so here we go again. And, and the process from that point on really just became telling our story. Um, and it's amazing when you go out and meet face-to-face -face with owners of surgery centers, and, and again, it's taking it down a level to, to be a little more personal, right? These administrators and owners, it's their own blood, sweat, and tears. These surgeon investors, it's their own blood, sweat, and tears. They want the same out of you. And they saw that what was happening in the current anesthesia landscape down here was the exact opposite of that. And we said, look, man, we got it. It is all on the line right here. We are going to make this work. You, this is going to be the best anesthesia experience you've ever had because we have no other choice. And, um, and it was true. And, and it, you know, it, it just kept going from there. How did you get that first contract? 
How did you get connected to somebody that was potentially open to swapping out their existing providers? I feel like anesthesia services are sticky. There's contracts, there's lead time, there's surgery scheduled. That's exactly the word I was going to use. That they are very sticky. Um, so it it's really planting a seed and waiting for the timing to be right. Um, it's it's even though it's a large community, it's a very small community. Um, there you know there's some other factors that go into it. If you know at that time there were still a lot of groups that were billing out of network um, for the benefit of of the dollars coming back to them, but it, at times that put the facility, the surgeons and the patients at a little bit of a bind. Um, the fact that we could come in and say we are all in network played a big role in that in, in a couple of the contracts. Um, and uh, you know, each one was a unique, uh, each one was a very unique scenario. And I think it was just taking the time to understand what was most important to them at that time and seeing if we could fit that, fit that role for them. You mentioned this MedMal endeavor happening in parallel. Tell us about that. So when, when, I, <laughs> when I jumped off the cliff to start my group, again, I'm kind of nervous because I have no job. We have no, the hospital was delayed for nine months. You know, so I, I, I luckily was connected at the same time to a medical malpractice company called AMSRG that um, the executive branch is based out of South Florida. And my role was to come in and help uh, be the specialty medical director for anesthesia and pain management for their existing book of business. So that means really taking the anesthesia and pain world and looking at it in a little bit of a, uh, a deeper sense to, you know, if we look at a group um, on a more personalized level in regards to risk, what they are and what they aren't doing, um, can we optimize that more? And can we help them be better? Can that then help the company be better? And really, um, it's adding a physician specialist layer to a book of business that, that wants to grow that specialty. So the book of business, who are the clients of this company? Physicians. They practices? Have, okay. Both. Um, individual physicians, practices, small, large, everything in between. Um, they're in all 50 states in the country. They've been around since the early 2000s um, and had a very, again, lessons learned about how to approach business in the right way. Um, they, the insurance, the medical malpractice insurance industry is cyclical, right? As, as policy pricing increases, decreases over time, they had a very strategic, slow and steady approach to it. Um, they didn't have to grow 50% each year. You know, they grew a couple percent each year, but when the market softened and everybody else dipped down, they were able to stay steady. So, you know, an interesting business, you know, trick to pick up is, is just to appreciate that, that slow and steady growth. Um, I think for me, the way medical malpractice companies and underwriters look at risk, in, let's just say in anesthesia specifically, super different than the way I looked at it as an anesthesiologist. So I would go there and I would evaluate applications and, and work on some of the underwriting and uh, evaluate some of the claims coming in. And I'd go back to my partners at, at Miami Anesthesia Service. I'm like, guys, we can't do this anymore. We got to look at it like this. And did you know that this could happen if you do this? And, and all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm, I, you know, this isn't really fair. I'm the only one that gets to absorb this material. Now I'm passing it to my partners and now we get to experience, but yeah, this, if we could get this out a little bit more, this is something providers really don't tackle on a day-to-day. -day. Um, and, and in the next endeavor that we talk about in Adaptrack, that's what we call these, you know, these blind spots that exist in physicians' lives. Um, you know, we're so busy doing other things that we have these blind spots that come in. And sometimes it just takes an awareness factor um, you know, somebody to kind of push that in front of you instead of kind of in the, in the blind spot to make you aware of it. And that awareness can change your entire behavior. It can change your practice. It can change your habits and it can change your, you know, how you practice on a day to day. Um, I saw that happen on a micro level, you know, with myself, um, between the two companies. Um, and, and again, as we as we talk about Adaptrack a little bit, that's really kind of what we're doing there, just more on the macro level. 
Can you give a couple just practical examples of some of the things that you saw and then you brought it back and you're like, we need to revise, you know, best practice or policies and procedures to adapt to the things that we're seeing in real time claims that are happening with other anesthesia, uh, anesthesiologists or other providers? Yeah, some of it is just exactly what you said, policies and procedures. You know, sometimes just having, uh, I'll, I'll give one example that, that really has come um, come in handy when talking about interaction between anesthesia and ambulatory surgery centers or, and or hospitals and policies. Um, again, anesthesia, we're very detail oriented, right? So we think if we're gonna write a policy, we would wanna write everything in between, right? You should do this, this, and this. If you wanna create discharge criteria, don't discharge a patient unless the blood pressure is less than 150 over 80 and blah, 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 heart rate is less than this. And you put it in hard number. That's, that's how our minds work, you know, very algorithmic. Um, from a liability standpoint, what you're doing there is you're creating a nightmare for yourself because there's lots of exceptions to the rules. So if you're creating a policy, you know, of course, create a policy that, that creates a backbone of safety and guidance, but don't lock yourself in. Because what if that patient who, you know, was perfectly stable, had a blood pressure of 160 over 90. And let's say they went home and had a stroke or had an MI and they come back and they said, well, you just discharged that patient, even though they did not meet your discharge criteria of 150 over 80, you clearly went against your policy and you're even more responsible. So it's just that a different way of thinking where it's actually counterintuitive. Um, and and that, that helped me going into these surgery centers and really um, working through some of the policies and procedures that they had in place to put protections not only for us as a group, but them as a, as a center. So that, that's a big part of anesthesia is you want to show your value, not just to yourself and your patients, but you're there. You have to understand the fact and get check your ego at the door. And you're there for your patients, the surgeons and that center. Right. And, and it's a, you're a vendor um, and that's OK as long as you're providing good service. That's okay. You know? Yeah. One of the themes that has come up on the show in the past is the idea of sort of the, the intersection of two different specialties, you could call it. So, and, and the value that you can provide if you learn one skill set and you're really obviously an expert in clinical anesthesia, and then you, you get this other perspective, the risk mitigation and management and analysis of being ingrained with a MedMal company and how that totally changed your paradigm and the the, the intersection of those two perspectives creates this, I mean, it's immensely valuable for your peers and from it was birthed this company called AdaptTrack. So talk a little bit about uh, what you're building there. Sure, so AdaptTrack is a, it's a digital risk awareness tool. Um, and Niraj Swamy is a CEO of AdaptTrack and he is a serial entrepreneur who is one of the most incredible minds and, and people that I have interacted with. And I say that because he is someone who truly, he holds true to his vision of fusing technology for the good of human behavior. And how can we use technology to change human behavior um, and, and having positive impact uh, with it. Um, so, you know, Niraj, from a tech standpoint, you know, has this vision and has this tool. And as, as uh, myself and the COO of the company, Sam Taggart, meet him from the medical liability world, we see this tool and we see healthcare written all over it. And, um, you know, the three of us together really start going down that path of how does healthcare and more specifically risk play into this incredible vision that he has with, with behaviors. And, um, you know, the, the behavioral science behind the whole platform is a very simple learning loop. And it's, you know, track, learn, and earn. So if you're tracking data, uh, if you're learning from these awareness pieces of content that we call nudges, and you're earning something from it. So you know, what do you earn or what are these rewards that we can bring forward? Well, what, the simplest one that we have is CME credits. So this has become just an enormous CME engine um, 
that's really changed the way in which people engage with, with learning and rewards. And that's, that's the backbone of it. Um, and we can get into a lot more about kind of where we've seen it come into play and how we're, how we're rolling it out and some of the different interactions that, that, that are, that are, that it's capable of. So, yeah. Why don't you tell us just sort of how the, so you, you said something when we spoke previously, just, uh, I, I'm really, I thought this was an interesting idea. There's a lot of software and we've actually talked in the past on this show about how basically any most, like a lot of medical software has to do with, it's, it's all about the economics of healthcare and like tracking how, how much a payer is going to pay for a certain number of procedures. And like everything kind of comes back to tracking the, the cash. And it's not necessarily like a patient care centered approach. And so there's a lot of software out there for hospitals, a lot of software out there for insurance companies, even some, I think for patients. And what you said was there's not a lot of software out there built for the doctor, which I, as I was thinking about that, obviously I'm not super familiar with all the healthcare IT and tech infrastructure, but I thought that was a really interesting idea. So talk a little bit about that and how that has shaped, that value has shaped the approach with AdaptTrack. Yeah, absolutely. The, the way you set, up, set it up is exactly right, Justin. The, what we found was nothing was provider focused. Um, you know, we're all trying to change healthcare, you know, this huge industry, but no one's looking at the engine, which is the, the physician or the provider in the middle. And if they are, they're just giving them like 20 more things to do. Click here, do this, do that. So my biggest job in AdaptTrack was being the provider. So being the mind of the provider, what do we want? What don't we want? We don't want anything else to do. We want, we've already, we're already doing things. Honestly, we're already learning constantly. We're having, you know, curbside conversations with, you know, with, with consultants. We're, we're on Zoom calls here. We're um, researching this. So we're already doing that. Why, why not have something meet you there and reward you for what you're already doing? And the, the key to, to being able to drive any kind of change or behavior is really having the engagement of the user. Getting a physician to engage with one more thing right now is super tough, <laughs> super hard. And um, I learned that when, I, when we tried to demo this with you know, all my buddies and they're like, you, you, you know, I can't, I can't right now. I don't want anything else to do. But then when we brought it to them, you know, it started to make a little more sense. And so everything that we've done along the path of the DAP track is to really meet that provider where they are and to be in their space and to understand what's important to them. So do I really want or need or even have the ability to sit in another one hour grand rounds? You know, not really, but that information, that content's important to me. So why not start breaking it up? And that's really what we started doing. And this is a little bit more of that behavioral science that's been proven to be more effective is micro learnings. So we're taking content and all this is tying back to risk in our medical malpractice days. And, and there's just tons of historical data. And that historical data tells us everything you'd ever don't wanna know about what's driving why you get sued and why you burn out and why you're documenting in an inefficient way and your day becomes longer and you can't see your family and all these things, that all exists there. It's just, we're not shuffling through it and finding what that is. And so if we can do that for you and then present it to you in 30 seconds or less, again, absorb it, take actionable insight on it. And that's the other portion of, of the app is really taking the information and reflecting on it and journaling. And you can either type that out or you can just do a quick response that it's useful and saving that and you earn CME credit. So now you've triggered a positive response to actually learning and it's much more powerful and it's much more effective. And you can literally, if you think of it with a half a credit, each learning nudge, you can jump on for 30 seconds, one time a week for an entire year and you've earned 20 CME credits. But the more powerful thing is you've done two more things. You've created awareness about what's driving all these risks. So you've in the background actually changed your behavior on it. And you've created this incredible risk profile on yourself, which shows what topics you've engaged with. And all of these are tagged in the topics that we know drive claims. And this is now presentable to medical malpractice companies 
where you're now earning premium discounts on your medical malpractice. So you become a safer provider, you're saving money and you're saving time. And when you talk about speaking the language of the provider, that speaks to me. You know, I want my time. I want my work-life balance. I'm tired of dishing out thousands of dollars for these courses that can be consumed in shorter amounts of time where I am. And, and again, that's not to disrupt what exists. It's, you know, it can be complementary to what exists. There's roles for lots of different ways of learning, um, but this may speak more to people in different scenarios. As you're describing this, I'm thinking, holy cow, my industry needs this because I'm a certified financial planner. We have CME. I don't know if you're already working on something or the finance industry, but this is like at the end of it's like it's between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's like, oh, crap, I got to get my 30 credit hours in. And there's these arcane, you know, you got to watch this webinar and then do the little quiz and like all the research that I do for my clients and solving complex and dynamic problems. Like I don't get credit for any of that. That's what actually makes me a better advisor. And it's totally wasted time for CME purposes. So I love the fact that you're harnessing like not only real world experience, but actually the point that data has shown that like liability exists. People make mistakes here. This is where you need to pay attention. And then you use that uh, just organically to bring it to the attention of the physician in the moment. I, I mean, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. You know, it, it, medical malpractice doesn't speak to everybody. You know, if, if you've gone through your career and you've never gotten sued, and you're kind of like, well, so what? But 50% of providers are sued in their career. So you're still kind of playing Russian roulette. The other, the other example is some clinicians don't absorb that direct cost of MedMal. It, it, it exists in the employer level above and they never really see it. What does speak to physicians, regardless of you know, your, your medical malpractice setup is getting sued and the experience it has on you, what, even aside from the financials, you know, it's a, it's a two to three year process of just it's pain. And it's, it actually alone has driven people to leave medicine. They, they have this insanely sick ability to really make you feel like you're a terrible person and you're a terrible provider, even though you could have done everything right. And so instead of being reactionary to something like that happening to somebody, you know, being preventative is, is super valuable. And, and that's really one of the goals here. Um, you know, again, I'm living the day-to-day -day life of a provider. You know, this is, this is what our goal is, is to make, you know, my life and my colleagues' life just like, just a little bit better. We're not solving everything, but if you can take a couple things off the plate, you know, it, it helps. Absolutely. And this is the kind of thing, there's a lot of, well, I should say, there's a few different stakeholders that would benefit from this. I mean, obviously like everyone benefits from this at some level, but there's some stakeholders that are like, this is so valuable to me. Like I will pay for this. I will help you implement this because this impacts our organization. And obviously like MedMal is sort of the first, the, co the insurance companies that have to pay out the claims. They're probably a big one. Organizations that, you know, uh, sites of the hospitals where who could also be on the hook in a MedMal case. That's probably another one. Have you found institutional buy-in for this type of system for those reasons? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And this is where, again, I, I have no business background. This has been sort of trial and error for me every single day from starting the anesthesia group to going into, to, to adapt track with my partners here. It's, um, so I've had to rely on picking up business tips I can learn along the way, right? And one of the things I, I learned and appreciated in the anesthesia startup was, you know, making sure if you're going to, if you're going to do something, make sure everybody at every level and every direction gains. So everybody, there has to be, you know, mutual incentives to, to move forward with something. Um, when we went down this path with the DAB track, how that came into light was very um, exciting because all of a sudden you found once you have that engaged physician who feels like he or she is, is gaining time, money, less risk, whatever it may be, now you also have a less risky, more efficient, less burned out physician. So from a company standpoint over top, that's a win. You know, you're, you're looking at a million dollar liability when you combine the cost of the average med mal claim, turnover of a team, of a team member in an inefficient practice. It adds up to a million dollars. So yes there has been there has been corporate support from that point of view 
Also, um, before I move past the corporate side, one of the big gains they've had is there, there's, there's been a, a very positive feedback to the other aspect we worked in to uh, Adaptrack, which is the Smile Bank. Um, and again, this is just trying to get in the head of physicians. What, what do we need you know, occasionally throughout our day? I wanna take a deep breath. I, I need something positive. And um, you know, what, what we saw during COVID was re it really added a special part to what we were doing. And you, know, you, you remember the early days of you know, March, April, May of last year, and all the videos of which, which was years ago, I know, which was videos of you know strangers standing on their balconies and applauding. Yeah, change of shift, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, for for the strangers of the frontline workers walking into the hospitals doing their jobs. Now this is stuff we do every, all day, every day, right? Now I saw that. I mean, it gave me chills. At the same time, I'm like, how how do we make that sustainable? Because that's going to go away. We know that's going to go away. Um, and so we created the Smile Bank. And so within the app, you know, you have the ability to click into your Smile Bank at any time, and it's filled with positive messages. It's filled with songs, um, you know, some speeches, some personal messages from strangers that are literally telling you, "We love what you do. Keep, you know, keep up the good work." And also customized. You know, you you can invite friends, family, peers, or corporations and employers over the top messaging their workers and really trying to lift them up with something active and positive. So all those little aspects have really spoken to the, the leaders at top who at, at times struggle to get the ear and reach the physician, right? We, we speak a little bit of a different language in the suits in the, in the office sometimes, and that's okay. Um, but maybe we can help bridge that a little bit, you know? Um, that, that third level that you mentioned as far as aligning incentives is just as you alluded to the medical malpractice companies. So how do they win? Um, it's interesting. Med mal companies already have systems in place to reward physicians for engaging with risk reduction activities, oftentimes in the form of, of CME activities and things of that nature. Um, but we are, we are able to go in and say, we can show you that ours is more effective and that our users are actually engaging in this kind of aggregate data in this amount of time on these specific topics that are tied to these specific risks. And now you actually can hold in your hand the fact that your insured physicians are less risky than they were before they used the, the app. Um, and so for that, the MedMal company gains, but they also pass that savings back to the physician in, in the form of, or back to the corporation, whoever's holding that that premium policy in the form of anywhere from two and a half to seven and a half percent off your, your premium. So that's when I got excited. When we walked through and I'm like, okay, there's three stakeholders here. Who's getting screwed? <laughs> well, no, like that's the fun part. You know, we found a way so that everybody really does gain something. Um, so it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like the, uh, it's like the safe driver discount where you like stick that thing on your dashboard and then all state can tell if you brake too hard or, that's exactly that's exactly what it is and, and actually the way it was created again this is part of naraj's brilliance in the in the tech world is the more data and api hooks you bring in to adapt track whether that's your calendar so i know when you're on call i know how busy you are how many meetings do you have what's your patient schedule or you bring in your electronic health record now we know the types of icd 10 codes the cpt codes all these things that are going on in your day-to-day the more data hooks you bring in, the more powerful and specific it gets, just like the safe driver, right? So again, if, we're, if you're able to track and you choose to share that, you should be rewarded for that um, because there's reason to be. You know, you've proven that you're less risky. How does a user interface with this? Is it on their phone? Is it like embedded in the EMR? Is it a combination of things? So we, it, it's a web-based app. So it can be accessed from your phone, from your iPad, from your desktop, anywhere. The other thing we did was, again, we're, 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 we're trying to be almost hyper aware of our pain points. Like, do I want another screen to stare at? No, pro probably not. Especially if I'm doing like telemedicine or, or this other stuff, you know, it's, it's enough already. So we actually made it 100% voice 
voice activated as well. So I can click a button and um, you know Alexa essentially calls me, or at least it's her voice, and um, walks through the entire experience on my phone, so by voice. So I can engage with the content, I can reflect by voice, I can leave my, my you know, journal, my thoughts, and that's all captured and that's all stored on my account. And I'm gaining CME the same way in which as if I was doing it you know, on the screen. The, the, other, the other way in which we've really found value, and again, trying to be respectful of what physicians and other providers want right now is, you know, we, we just integrated into Clubhouse. I'm not sure if you jumped on that fun yet. You know, somebody invited me the other day. I actually have an Android and an iPod Touch, oh, and I'm not sure I'm okay. going to be able to get in with that combo. <laughs> you can get in with your iPad. Um, so, you know, Clubhouse, it's just an example of there's there are incredible conversations going on in there. It's all audio based and you, there it's it's essentially in open rooms um, and the healthcare population on Clubhouse is is insane and really good content that's super relevant to what we do every day. And so why not why not earn something for participating in that? So we actually are the, the first company to integrate into Clubhouse and generate CME from the meaningful conversations and learnings you're already doing. So in that respect, you get a text while you're in the Clubhouse conversation and you can text your reflection back and now you've earned CME credit. Um, same thing we're doing with, with Disney. Um, as physicians go to Disney, they're able to, to link in and reflect on work-life balance. You know, these are activities. We have nature walks in partnership with um, the Morton Arboretum in Chicago. So these are activities that actually are driving value to physicians because they are, they are helping reduce burnout, create moments of mindfulness, um, help with work-life balance, which, you know, burnout is not just a risk to myself, but it's actually been shown you're going to make more errors at work when you're hitting that wall. Those errors are going to lead to claims. So, you know, it's putting these pieces together and finding ways to reward physicians for what they're already doing. Um, and it's, it has been very exciting to see people respond to that in such a positive way and, and shift out of that mindset of, yeah, but I'm not sitting in a room for an hour. How can you do this? Well, because the ACCME actually, you know, really supports active learning and reflective learning and, um, what you're reflecting on is how you're going to take this information and how it's going to change what you do in your practice day to day. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's powerful. What's been the hardest part of making this work? Oh, this meaning like life. <laughs> well, yeah, you can, I'll leave it open-ended. I was thinking in terms of like constructing a DAP track, getting it from a thing in your brain to being accessed by a bunch of physicians. The, the, the hardest part, um, you know, one of the hardest parts is me finding my own balance um, and trying to do it. You know, I am still in clinical practice five days a week, you know, with with Miami Anesthesia Services and and have been fully engaged with Adaptrack, you know, for the past few years as well. So um, one challenge is this is just the hours in the day. Um, but at the same time, I feel like I'm focused and driven, driving value in each side. I can't stop either one right now. Um, it's from from specifically from from an adapt track side. Um, as fast as we have moved, um, being that it's you know that startup kind of mentality. You know, here's an idea. Okay, Naraz just built it in three minutes, and now I can see it on my screen. That's incredibly fast. But the process of getting from thought to product to in the hands. You know, it's been a almost a three-year process. And again, circling back to one of my earlier comments, you know, in the anesthesia world, we, we don't do well waiting three years for things. Like we push a drug and it works. So just finding patience um, and being patient on, on watching something evolve and letting it evolve in the right timeframe. Um, because I think if we, you know, if we would have rushed this, and this would have launched before we saw what happened with COVID, it would have been a very different product. And, you know, along the same lines, I think we as physicians have changed in a very positive way at post COVID. You know, imagine telling an orthopedic surgeon, 
in 2019 to go practice mindfulness for a minute and, you know, concentrate on work-life balance. You know, I mean, most will throw you out of the room, but, but for about, you know, at least seven weeks last year, we were forced into one of two camps. We were forced to either plant our butts at home and not leave and be with family and appreciate friends and appreciate everything that we had missed probably since high school, right? Um, and that opened our eyes to something. Or we were in the other camp where we were literally locked into that hospital or renting an apartment because we were afraid to go home to our families, right? And we were missing that part so much, but we had a dedication to what our career was and what we were doing for our community that, you know, you know, you, 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 it's, you still shifted that mind. Your endpoint, regardless of what camp you fell into, that endpoint is the same. We all came out changed and realized, you know, there's a lot more out there, right? Work is super important, but so is the rest of life. And there is a way to start kind of balancing that a little more, you know, maybe not overnight, maybe not with one solution is going to fix it all, but you know, it's, it's a little more top of mind, I think for us now. So there's definitely people listening to this who are thinking, holy cow, I'd love for all my CME to be covered and my med mal premiums to go down. That sounds amazing. Where do I sign? What's the, what, what, if somebody's listening and is interested, what, what should they do? Sure. So you can go to the website, um, adapttrack.com. Um, from there, you know, you'll get a little more information on it. There's also a, a, a button that, that can, you can click into and start the onboarding process. We're very, again, conscious of onboarding. You know, we're not going to make this drawn out into a, a 30 minute session. It's pretty much 20 seconds and you're on. Um, the things you need to onboard is your phone number, your email address, and your NPI number. And we have a link in there to look up your NPI if you don't know it. The reason we link that is that's our, for, our first data source for you. So that's what drives all the content to be specialty specific for what specialty you're in. Um, and after that, you're on and, and you're a user and it's free to be a user. You can engage with as much content as you want. You can rack up as much CME as you want. When you choose to claim that CME certificate, it's 20 bucks. Um, and then that CME certificate can be printed, downloaded, and it's saved forever on your account there. You can go back to it if you want, and you can continue working towards your next CME goal. Um, that entire time, your risk profile is building and that's shareable as well. Um, we actually have a way you can, you can contact us. We can help you reach out to the medical malpractice companies, or you can share it directly with them. Um, but again, we, we tried to make it pretty intuitive on there so that it's easy to drive and you can find all this stuff. Um, you know, again, being respectful of the amount of time that physicians are actually going to want to dedicate to one more thing. So it's all kind of easy, quick, and, and right there for you. Absolutely. Well, as a physician spouse, I have a vested interest in your success. I, I love this idea. I love, uh, it's, it's the innovation, it's the practicality, it's the acknowledgement of the physician plight. <laughs> and it's, it's the rising tide raising all ships. It's good for insurers, it's good for the patient because their doctors are not as burned out and it's good for the physicians who are getting time back in their day and in their calendar. And I, I, I'm just really excited to, th thank you, Dr. Cohen for joining us, for telling your story. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Appreciate the platform, Justin. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.